This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Write this down, boy. Five dead. Three male, two female. First male, James Donnelly Sr., presumed. Age, 70s. Severe head trauma. Severe burns. No way to determine which came first. Was he beaten then burnt, or burnt then beaten? Unknown at this time. Liver shows a history of severe alcohol consumption. Here, weigh this. Second victim, Joanna Donnelly, presumed. Age 70s as well. Condition similar to first victim. Cause of death unknown at this time. Third victim. Uh, wait, I'm still writing. Third victim. Female. Aged. 19. I've got, uh, presumed 70s. Shorthand. Keep up. Third victim. Bridget Donnelly. Presumed. Severe head trauma. Likely a blunt object. Scarred by fire. Cause of death also unknown. I'll just put the age and then same as above. Fourth victim, Thomas Donnelly. Same as above. Same as above. Victim five, John Donnelly. Cause of death, gunshot wound. Well, at least we know for certain someone wanted this one dead. So, for suspect, I should put... For all of them, persons unknown. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your other host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on the Black Donnellys. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you'd leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Welcome back to our story on the Black Donnelly murders. Today we're looking at what happened after a family of Irish immigrants in Canada faced a grisly death at the hands of a gang of well-connected vigilantes. If you want to hear how the Donnellys found their way to London, Ontario from Tipperary, Ireland, and the conflicts with their neighbors that brought about their grisly end, Listen to our previous episode. In today's episode, we'll be talking about their town's efforts to bring their killers to justice. But when you've been killed by an angry mob wielding torches and pitchforks, that's not always the easiest proposition. Especially when the main suspects are the parish priest and the chief of police. In the Donnelly's part of Ontario, there was a group of property owners who felt aggrieved by the Donnelly's politics and public stances. After being outwitted at every turn by the Donnelly's manipulation of the court system, several members of the community formed an organization known as the Badolf Peace Society. 
and some of them decided to take matters into their own hands. A group of 15 or more people charged into the night and attacked the Donnelly homestead, savagely beating James Donnelly, his wife Johanna, son Tom, and niece Bridget, then setting the house ablaze. Then they shot another son, John Donnelly, who was staying at his brother Will's house nearby. They left, thinking that the evidence had been burned and that there were no survivors. But there was something the attackers didn't know. Mama! Mama! Look at the sight of you, Johnny O'Connor, making your way home in a girl's hat and robe. You'd better tell me what became of the fine coat I sent you to Mr. Donnelly's with, and quick. Mama, I... It burned. In the fire. Oh? What fire is that? These men uh, came with the constable. He said they had a warrant, and then they set upon Mr. and Mrs. Donnelly like... uh, I don't know what. Beasts. Uh, They hit him so hard. And then they started the fire. Everything burned. I think they're dead. Constable James Carroll was Bedolph Township's chief law enforcement officer. He was also on the opposite side of a generations-long conflict between the Donnellys and their neighbors. Many of whom had joined a peace society that was ostensibly about cracking down on crime in Bedolph but was mainly an organized way to intimidate and abuse the minority of Catholics who believed in friendly relationships with Protestants. Constable! Constable! Will Donnelly! He's alive! That can't be true. He's got two bullets in him. No, sir. Coroner says it's the older one, John, that was hit. How much did the cripple see? We don't know. I came to you first. Well, we'll have to find out, won't we? Looking back, there's plenty of written evidence to suggest that anyone who joined this society probably did it because they had a bone to pick with the Donnellys. James Donnelly had no interest in joining the Peace Society and even took the outrageous step of donating to a nearby Protestant church just to make them angry. Ooh, and it worked. A splinter group was formed by the most dedicated members of the Peace Society, a vigilance committee, which had a singular aim, to harass and attack the Donnellys. There were more than a dozen members of the Vigilance Committee, including Constable Carroll and Father Connolly, the town's priest. A funeral was held for the Donnellys at St. Patrick's in London, Ontario. But even though they were brutally murdered, disfigured by fire, and attacked by the very people sworn to protect them. Father Connolly still found an opportunity to extemporize on their failings as Catholics and neighbors. It might be thought I was not in friendship with the family, but I can say truly that I have no enmity against them. With the old people I always agreed, particularly with the old woman. She came frequently to confession, and it was only on last Christmas Eve that she told me of all the sorrows and troubles of her life. On that night, the old woman told me she was trying to get her boys to come to confession. But they did not come, and here's the consequence. Oh, God of heaven, forgive them. Not high praise as far as eulogies go. It was a fine service, Father. Don't you think so, Will? I do, Rob. Thank you, boys. And surely you read my letter about the Vigilance Committee? You were a member of that committee, weren't you, Father? Well, yes, I was. As it happens, I had not much to do... I was not present at any of its meetings, but I had unbounded confidence in the men that belonged to it. 
and believe they are incapable of committing such a terrible murder as this one. It was outside of them, and, and my suspicions rest on others. I can't understand how it took place. Well, Father, we don't believe you. But it'll be sorted out in the end, won't it, Rob? God willing, it will. It will. The murder of an infamous family was, of course, cause for a flood of gossip in Bedolph. Well, you heard about the Donnellys, didn't you? Who hasn't? I heard that rat of a priest, Father Connolly, won't have them buried in St. Patrick's. Why should they be? After all the trouble they've caused, it'll be straight to hell with the lot of them. Good riddance, I say. Now they're saying the Donnelly relatives are going to be disinterred? What? <laughs> Murder wasn't punishment enough? This rumor, and many others, proved to be false, but that didn't stop the town from spreading them like wildfire. The people who did this? They'll be brought to justice. But investigating crime didn't work the same way back then as it does now. Some people believe that the key to solving murder could be found in a new technology, the camera. That's it. Now hold his eyes wide open. The theory was that somehow the last image a person sees is burned in to his eyes and would reveal itself and therefore the face of the murderer if the victim were to be photographed after death. Ready? The coroner attempted this on James Donnelly. Oh, the picture is utterly chilling. James Donnelly, appearing younger than his 72 years, stares lifelessly into the camera, eyes forced open, his jaw slack, his face expressionless. It's the only time he was ever photographed. And it still didn't answer the question of who murdered him. Because of the severity of the crime, a forensic expert from London, their part of Ontario's largest city, was called out to investigate. William Thomas Trounce Williams, London's chief of police, arrived shortly after the murders took place in October 1878. Williams had experience restoring peace after riots broke out between rival Irish factions in Toronto. And when he arrived in Bedolph, it didn't take him long to discover the Vigilance Committee. My God, they wrote it all down. Williams discovered 15 suspects, all members of the Vigilance Committee, and all of whom had various grudges and vendettas against the Donnellys. They were John Kennedy, Martin McLaughlin, Thomas Ryder, James Mayer Sr., James Mayer Jr., John Darcy, Grouchy Ryder, his sons James Ryder and Pat Ryder Jr., Michael Heenan, William Carroll, John Pertell, James Mayer's wife, a servant in the Mayer household, James Shea, and one more suspect. James Carroll, chief of police. But with that many suspects, all co-conspirators, Williams knew he would have to proceed carefully in order to preserve the evidence and keep the suspects from colluding. So he started at the top with James Carroll. Yes? Mr. Mayor, how are you? Chief Inspector Williams. Can I help you? I need to speak to the constable. Oh, uh, he's a... Uh, what's this about? I'm afraid I can't say. It's a police matter. Williams put Carol in the carriage and took the long way to Lucan, passing the charred ruins of the Donnelly homestead. Well, there's the remains of old decency, eh? Hmm? It is tragic, isn't it? Whole family burned to death? Hmm. <laughs> But you don't seem to be looking at the crime scene. 
I guess you've already investigated it? Mm-hmm. Well, that'll be enough. Once they were safely in Lucan, with backup officers at the ready, Williams initiated the arrest. James Carroll, I place you under arrest in Her Majesty's name for the murder of James Donnelly, Johanna Donnelly, Bridget Donnelly, Thomas Donnelly, and Jonathan Donnelly. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, let's continue our story. When you're living in rural Ontario, justice is important. But there aren't really resources to keep a courthouse running year-round. The solution is to hold assizes, in which a judge travels to your town twice a year to conduct trials and court business over the course of a couple of weeks, and then moves on to another region in his circuit. Kind of like a traveling circus, but for the legal system. And traveling circus is actually a pretty apt comparison. These were rowdy affairs. First of all, without a dedicated courthouse, trials were usually held in the building next best suited for holding large groups of people, the village pub. (laughs) And because in a small town everybody knows everybody else, they attracted a lot of spectators. Who weren't always familiar with the rules of decorum expected in court. And because they attracted a lot of spectators, they attracted other interested parties. Dr. Garrison's miracle patent medicine. Fresh flowers. Your one bottle solution to baldness, gout. Fresh baked bread, two loaves for a penny. And of course, the press. Newspapers played to their readers' prejudices. And they weren't afraid to sensationalize the details of the murder to stir up their readers. This village, which usually presents a very quiet and dull appearance, was unusually lively today sleighs and cutters, laden with men anxious to hear the news and see for themselves where the tragic scenes of only a few nights ago occurred. With a sense of horror and sadness, they looked, while they were pointed to the spot where lay the charred remains of a mother, who while praying, but in vain, that her murderers would give her but a few moments to prepare for death, was murdered. Mr. William Stanley Reeve was fearless in stating that two years ago, the Donnellys were the terror of the township. On being questioned as to Father Connolly's accusation that the magistrates neglected their duty, he said that although the boys were often arrested on various charges, it was very difficult to secure a conviction. In fact, it was impossible to get evidence, as the people seemed to fear that if they swore against the Donnellys, their barns would be burned down, or they would be made to suffer by other depredations. Horror-stricken as the entire community at the Lucan tragedy, the immediate region in which the deed of blood and fire was consummated, is perfectly appalled at the law-defying butchery, which has sent five members of one family to their last account, and brought the law-abiding reputation of the people of Canada into contempt and disgrace. The victims of this deliberate and wholesale murder may be all they have been represented, and worse if this were possible, for they certainly were a thoroughly bad lot and the terror of their neighborhood. But all this does not justify the cowardly murder of them by a gang of masked ruffians who, in carrying out the sentence of Judge Lynch upon the Donnellys, were guilty of a crime at least as black as anything of which the depraved and doomed family had ever been guilty. With a sensational press goading on their rivals, the surviving Donnelly brothers were forced to put together their case against Carol 
while their whereabouts were common knowledge in the town. Oh, good. More mail. What's this one say? Sir, you know well enough whom the slugs were intended for that took effect in your brother John. It was a slight miscarriage, but it was well to get Jack out of the way. There may be a slug or two left for you if you don't be careful. Yours warningly, one who knows what he knows. Well, it'll keep the fire burning, I suppose. The question before the court at this stage was to determine if the evidence was sufficient to press charges against Constable Carroll for the murder of Johanna Donnelly. Well, the first pre-trial hearing was held in the Lucan Public School. Offering testimony was Patrick Whelan, who was known to have attended Peace Society meetings. You might not be surprised to hear that his testimony wasn't the most revealing. I never belonged to the Vigilance Committee. I was at one of the meetings of the committee, but there was no business done. I don't know who asked me to go. I saw the people going, so I went with them. I had received no notice of the meeting, but thinking there was a meeting that night, I went over. I don't know why I went. I remember going, but I don't know why. I went to the meeting, but I don't know with whom. I, I don't think I can remember. Great. <laughs> the court adjourned until the following Wednesday, and most people presumed it was going to be over and done with. Welcome back. Is there any more evidence to present? Uh, Your Honor, I'd like to testify. I was at the Donnelly house the night... Uh... Uh, the night it happened. Johnny O'Connor, the boy who survived the attack by hiding under the bed, would prove to be the voice that would change everything. Uh, I went to Mr. Donnelly's house the evening b before the murder. I went with Mr. Donnelly and Thomas Donnelly. They wanted me to feed the pigs and things while they went to Granton. I was wakened up between 12 and 2 o'clock, uh, the old man getting up woke me up. The old man got up. I saw James Carroll holding a candle at the room door for the old man to dress himself. The old man asked him what he was arresting him for now. He said he had another charge against him. Then a whole crowd rushed in and started hammering them with sticks. I, I was still lying in bed when they came in. I got under the bed. I peeped out and saw Thomas Ryder and John Pertell. I had known them well before. I know Carol well. They were all standing around Tom. I saw one in women's clothes. Some had their faces blackened. Carol, Ryder, and Pertell had not their faces blackened. Then one asked, where is the girl? Another answered, upstairs. Johnny O'Connor had just given eyewitness testimony that implicated several prominent members of Badolph Township, including its constable, James Carroll, in the murders of the five members of the Donnelly family. Which meant that this case was about to get complicated. Is what you say true, boy? It is, Your Honor. In light of this new evidence, this hearing is adjourned. The trial will be held in the fall assizes. Guards, remand the prisoners to the Lucan jail. This was all happening in February 1880. Now the trial wouldn't be held until October. Which meant eight months of keeping the town of Lucan from boiling over. Johnny O'Connor, as the key witness, lived in constant fear. 
In an attempt to intimidate him and prevent his testimony at the trial, his mother was attacked and beaten, and his parents' house was burned to the ground. Fortunately, Johnny had been staying at a neighbor's that night for his own protection. The pressure was getting too intense. Your Honor, I write to you in light of the many threats against witnesses and their relatives. The Crown respectfully must ask for a change of venue. This trial cannot be held in Lucan. This motion is denied. Meanwhile, in the Lucan County Jail, Constable Carroll was making the best of the situation. Everything all right, Constable? Cigarette? Piece of fruit? We've got apples, oranges. Bit bored, to be honest. Some time in the yard? I was thinking some company. Another visit from my wife. Of course, sir. As the trial grew closer, the most important task at hand, though, was to convene a jury. Which meant finding 12 people in Lucan who could be impartial in the matter. (laughs) Which everybody knew wasn't going to be easy. Do you men swear your solemn oath to listen to the testimony that is about to be put before you? and to make your decision based solely on the merit of the facts? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. Yes. Then we shall begin. The Crown Prosecutor was Emilius Irving, one of Canada's fiercest legal minds, and he made sure you knew his reputation as soon as you met him. The Crown calls Mr. John O'Connor. Uh, me? Aye, lad. No need to be scared. Oh, most people call me Johnny is all. Do you give your solemn oath to listen to the testimony that is about to be put before Since it was Johnny's testimony that was the key to indicting Constable Carroll, the trial records show his story was mostly consistent from the pre-trial hearing. But this time, Carroll's defense attorney, McMahon, could cross-examine Johnny O'Connor. And where were you at the time? Hiding under the bed, sir. And yet you claim to have seen these men's faces? How do you know for certain you saw the constable that night? I've seen him before, sir. I recognized him. His face wasn't blackened like the other men. Other men? So the one who killed Johanna Donnelly could have been any of them? Oh, no. It was. I saw him. He poured coal oil over the house and set it on fire. How do you know it was coal oil? They said it was coal oil. Objection! Hearsay. Sustained. Have you smelled coal oil before? Do you know for certain that's what it was? I haven't, but... I move to strike the witness's testimony with regards to coal oil on grounds of credibility. Sustained! The judge seemed to favor the defense attorney at every turn. And even the prosecutor had been seen dining with Father Conley, who frequently made visits to the accused in jail. The witness will be sworn in. William Donnelly, do you swear or give your solemn oath that the testimony you present to the court shall be the truth in its entirety to the best of your ability? I swear it, so help me God. So, when it came time for Will Donnelly to testify, he had plenty to say. I saw John Kennedy, James Carroll, and James Ryder. They were partly in front of the glass window. I saw three others outside of the fence, near to the little gate. I calculated that they were William Carroll, Patrick Ryder Jr., and Michael Heenan. I speak positively as to John Kennedy, James Carroll, and James Ryder. These persons are well known to me. I have known Ryder since he was born and Kennedy ever since I can remember. I have known James Carroll for two or three years. I was too well acquainted with James Carroll 
because he has been dragging us around the country since a year ago, the 14th October last. He was getting us arrested every now and again. He had been very unfriendly towards us. There was a very bad feeling of Carol towards us. He showed it every chance he could get. He showed it before he was appointed constable, as well as afterwards. Two witnesses placed Carroll at the scene and had given detailed testimony about his involvement in the feud against the Donnellys. But now it was time for the defense to offer rebuttal testimony, and they drew from the members of the Badolf Peace Society, who had sworn to inflict as much harm on the Donnellys as they could. Carroll's defense was built on an alibi, and there were plenty of witnesses to back up claims that Carroll and his allies were nowhere near the Donnellys that night. Of course the constable was at my house. I remember him placing his boots by the hearth. When I got up to take my medicine at two o'clock, they were still there. I spent the night with the McGraths, who are so unfairly charged with this terrible crime. I know for certain that they were nowhere near the Donnellys because at exactly 2 a.m., my sister came downstairs for a glass of water. James Bryan was at my house that night. He came for some medicine for his children. He didn't stay more than two minutes, but I remember the clock striking two while he was there. It's pretty remarkable how many people happen to have exact recollections of exactly what they were doing at 2 a.m. on a random February night, isn't it? The prosecutor seemed to think so, that's for sure. And after over a hundred witnesses for the defense... He was at my house, playing cards. I was at his house, playing cards. I saw them both at the card game. I remember because we were playing when the clock struck 2 a.m. I find it terribly difficult to believe that these witnesses are fulfilling their oath to the court and are giving full and truthful testimony. Your Honor will... Is the Crown suggesting these witnesses have committed perjury? If so, I hope you have compelling evidence to support such a claim. I only ask that the jurors look to their conscience and think of the poor grandmother who faced a violent end at the hand of vigilante thugs. Looking at everything, the evidence was in the prosecution's favor. There had been credible witnesses who had placed the suspects at the scene, and the defense's story stretched the imagination to say the least. The defense's summation was unorthodox as well. You have heard from Johnny O'Connor, who claims to have been present on the night of these dreadful killings, but I ask you this. If James Carroll is the violent killer Johnny O'Connor says he is, how is it possible that Mr. O'Connor lived to tell the tale? The jury wasn't expected to deliberate for long. The verdict was supposed to be guilty. But after deliberating late into the night on a Saturday, the jury reconvened. Have you reached a unanimous verdict? We have not, Your Honor, and it's become clear we're not going to. The result was a hung jury. Seven in favor of acquittal, four for guilty, one undecided. The jury is dismissed and thanked for its service. The case will be retried next year at the spring assizes. Which meant the matter was far from closed. And wouldn't be for another six months. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. After returning without a verdict, some people wanted to poll the jury. And what they found wasn't pretty. I wouldn't go for conviction if I'd seen them do the deed. Even after airing the gory details of the massacre in open court, the town 
was still biased against the Donnellys. Regardless of the evidence, or lack thereof, it wasn't going to be easy to convict Constable Carroll for the murder of Johanna Donnelly. Waiting for the spring assizes meant more months of tension. Fortunately, in this case, there weren't many surprises when the retrial rolled around. Johnny O'Connor had given his eyewitness testimony, now for the third time. And Will Donnelly testified, again, to say that he had seen Carol on the night of the murders. I also heard Carol say something. It was either what next or, or which best. He was apparently speaking to Ryder and Kennedy. There were some words from the parties out at the fence, but I couldn't hear what they were. There was a reply to the question, what But the new judge decided that Will Donnelly's decision to testify meant that his entire character and his personal history was now on trial. I was attacked by the Donnelly boys at the Lucan Hotel. They burned my barn! Everyone knows it was the Donnellys who were robbing stagecoaches up and down the Roman line. Convenient, isn't it? Not if you're Will Donnelly. Or any of the other witnesses for the prosecution. And after the favorable hung jury verdict, Witnesses for the defense were now as emboldened as ever. How often were you at the meetings of the Peace Society? Three or four times. What business was done the first time? I don't remember anything being done. What was done the second time you were there? I don't remember. What was done the third time you were there? I don't remember. Your Honor, would you please instruct the witness to answer the question? In the court's opinion, the witness is answering the question truthfully to the best of his ability and in keeping with his oath. Oh, and about the witness's oaths? One thing that kept accidentally happening was to give witnesses friendly to the defense Protestant Bibles to swear upon. And many of the Catholic witnesses had no qualms about breaking an oath sworn on a Protestant Bible. The trial quickly devolved into a chaotic mess. And that's when I saw the constable. Oh, my stomach. Oh, I'm in so much pain. Please, God, have mercy on me, your humble servant. Please, the defendant will be removed from the court. Your Honor, uh, with all respect, I need to be borne out on a stretcher. My stomach feels like it's tied up in knots. Please, sir, I beg you. Fetch a stretcher. The jury will not allow the defendant's illness to color their deliberations. The witness may proceed. Um, like I was saying, I, I saw the constable there that night. And the jury deliberated relatively quickly and returned the verdict most people wanted to hear. We find the defendant, James Carroll, not guilty on all counts. Quiet! Order! Thank you, the jury is dismissed. Bring in the remaining prisoners. A new jury will be convened and sworn. Your Honor, I ask that the jurors not be sworn. The Crown, under the circumstances, is not prepared to proceed with the trial of these prisoners. Carroll has just been acquitted. The evidence against these men is the same as that which was presented against the last prisoner. I do not foresee any different verdict in their case from that which has just been rendered. I therefore ask that their cases of arson, the killing of the unfortunates, and the burning of the building go over to the next assizes. The prosecution had essentially given up its case. The Crown is ready to consider the question of bail for all the accused. And whether that was a result of pressure from the community or a simple lack of evidence, 
Everyone who had been held in jail over the Donnelly murders was now free for a few hundred dollars in bail money. The idea was to hold yet another trial in the spring, but we don't know who had faith that that was ever going to really happen. All we have is transcripts from the trial and the message the judge delivered to Constable Carroll. James Carroll, you are now acquitted of the charge of the murder of Johanna Donnelly, but not from the charge of which you may yet be placed on trial for the murder of James Donnelly, Thomas Donnelly, and Bridget Donnelly. The jury in your case have taken a most favorable view, and I hope a correct view has been taken by them. And I sincerely hope you have not been guilty of the atrocious crime laid to your charge. That sounds like the judge thinks he did it. Mm. Nevertheless, he had no choice but to enforce the jury's verdict. There is one point, however, I must dwell on. You, James Carroll, are a member of the constabulatory of your county, and you have, in the discharge of your duties, as a constable, exhibited the utmost disparity. It has been plainly shown you are particularly anxious to prosecute the Donnellys. And if you have suffered a year's imprisonment, you have yourself to blame for it. This, together with the continual dread and uncertainty hanging over you, may be regarded by you in some measure as a punishment for your dereliction of duty in the discharge of your duties as a constable. I trust you will leave the dock a better and wiser man. You are discharged. You hear that, boys? To the pub. Drinks on me. James Carroll had just been released after being found not guilty of the murder of Johanna Donnelly. All the remaining suspects had been released on bail, the prosecution deciding that there wasn't enough evidence to try them for the remaining crimes of arson and murder. And while, in retrospect, we can see this as the perversion of justice that it was, that wasn't the reaction in Badolf that day. In fact, an impromptu parade broke out to escort Constable Carroll to a local watering hole, where he was clapped on the back by his friends and co-conspirators. Fine job, Jim. You licked them good. I always knew we would. <laughs> You're right. Hey, come this way. Father Connolly wants to say congratulations. But not everyone was celebrating that day. Especially not the surviving Donnelly brothers. Having a bit of a party, are you? Well, who will join me at the bar? Which one of you murderers will have something? No one? Then just whiskey for me, I suppose. Enjoy the party. Rob and Will Donnelly put effort into making the third trial a success. But with a prosecution so friendly to the conspirators and the town devoid of impartial jurors, there wasn't much hope of a victory. Their struggle didn't go unnoticed in the press. At New Westminster, British Columbia, four men were hung last week for the murder of one man, while at the border of Old Westminster in Ontario, one man was acquitted who was shown to have murdered four persons. Stronger evidence, both direct and circumstantial, has rarely been brought against any man who, in the face of it, escaped the gallows. When the time came for a third trial, the matter was dropped almost immediately. 
And nobody was ever convicted of the Donnelly murders. Despite all the evidence and the numerous flagrant violations of the normal order of justice, their murder remains technically unsolved. And one of the most notorious in Canadian history. Once the matter was formally dropped, there were just a few procedural matters to resolve before the town washed its hands of the whole matter. Here you are, sir. Everything look all right? Hmm. What's this paper say? Just says you received from the Crown's attorney one revolver in good condition, that it was taken upon your arrest in connection with the Bidolf murder, and that you're willing to return it to us should it be needed as evidence. But I think we both know that's not going to happen. Sign or make your mark, please. The murderers got their guns back? With an apology from the court for holding them so long as evidence. The surviving Donnelly boys, Rob, Will, and Michael, ended up staying in Ontario and returning to their stagecoach business. But they never gave up their grudge against the people they knew were responsible. How can I help you, my son? Simple, Father Connolly. I was hoping you'd let me put up these posters in the shrine. Will and I are putting up a $4,000 reward for anyone who knows who really killed our parents. Rob, Rob, I, I don't think it would be appropriate to... You don't know who really killed our parents, do you, Father? Well, I, uh, well... Seeing as you were a member of the Peace Society, it wouldn't be too far-fetched, would it, Father? What happened to your family was a tragedy, of course, but, but I don't know anything. I'm not accusing you, of course. You're a man of God. So it's God's justice you'll face, not man's. I'll just stick this right here. Pleasant day to you, Father Connolly. While the murders remained technically unsolved, there was very little doubt about who was responsible for the violence and bloodshed that claimed five lives in February 1880. Well, most directly, it was James Carroll. He was present that night and had a duty to protect the Donnellys, even if he didn't deliver the fatal blow. But the rest of the Vigilance Committee, the 15 men who formed a society dedicated to violence and hate, are also responsible. They, like too many others who have come after them, never faced the justice that they deserved. Lastly, the people of Badolf also bear responsibility. Plenty of innocent people turned a blind eye to the toxic grudges that were being stoked by their leaders. And in doing so, gave their neighbors permission to get away with murder. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Harry Nangle 
and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Manu Narayan, Steve Pinto, and Cooper Shaw.